are going to start today's session with a conversation with Steve Midson Marker, SVP of Corporate Development at Rackspace. Steve, welcome to the show. Great, thank you. It's a pleasure to be invited. Congratulations on all the accomplishments so far. And uh, it's exciting to have the opportunity to um, speak with you today and um, be in front of the amazing audience you're able to assemble. Thank you. Well, let's start by introducing our audience to you a little bit. Talk a bit about your background in CorpDev. You've been at it for a long time, so <laughs> uh, CorpDev oh, is, is your baby. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm celebrating over 20 years of experience in corporate development nice. across the enterprise software, enterprise hardware, and consumer internet sectors. I've worked at um, companies like Business Objects. We had been a, a leader in the business intelligence space that was acquired by SAP. Um, I worked at Yahoo, uh, and I just wrapped up almost 10 years at the uh, hardware company that went through an amazing transformation um, to also becoming a cloud company, uh, NetApp. Um, and then recently um, transitioned over to join Rackspace Technology, which is you know, such a unique company. They were really, you know, the public cloud uh, before the public cloud existed. Um, they've gone through their own transformation, having gone private and recently going public again, and now a leader in hybrid multi-cloud solution offerings. But um, as a result, you know, I've really gotten to see the gamut from enterprise to consumer, um, hardware, software, um, internet and cloud and gotten to work with countless entrepreneurs and startups. Um, you know, I've worked on, um, you know, well over 60 M&A transactions and corporate venture investments. And, you know, I don't get enough of it during my day job. So on the side, you know, also do uh, advisory work um, to startups and, um, you know, other accelerators. So um, Steve, as I want to connect two dots uh, here. Um, one is, you probably are very aware that uh, we were also working with NetApp at one point when, with the NetApp Accelerator, and, um, and DataStacks, this company that we have just announced a partnership with, was incubated inside Rackspace. Did you know that? I do, actually, and it's a funny <laughs> story because I've seen the original documents, and one of the first little projects I had to do um, in the fun days of, you know, the, the, the parts of corporate development that are very unsexy are, are things like every month or every quarter dealing with the mark-to-market requirements of, you know, any um, investments that we make. And, and it was after Datastax announced their latest funding round that we realized no one had done that work for about 10 years. And so we, we had to dig through the old documents and you know, what, what the company Datastacks, you know, was before it was named Datastacks. So, yeah, I'm actually very familiar with, with that history. And, uh, you know, I've seen the, the original funding documents to prove it. Great. Well, um, I want to focus today's session on um, kind of helping our entrepreneur audience understand exit strategy better. But the reason I wanted to invite you to enlighten us is to provide a buy-side perspective on acquisition. Uh, so tell me 
first, how do you think about buy-side M&A? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're a, a unique function in organizations. And, you know, when people, you know, ask me, well, you know, how do you spend your days, um, uh, especially, you know, working at a company like, like NetApp, where, um, you know, we're, we're perhaps not as, as uh, serial an acquirer as some of our peer group, um, you know, doing a deal a week or, or a deal a month where the cadence is a little bit, uh, you know, more, more ad hoc. And so it's a unique function inside of an organization um, in that really we're sort of the, the special forces group. And I divide, you know, a day in the life around kind of our time management into, um, you know, the vast majority of it really on a day-to-day -day basis is what I call ecosystem engagement, where, you know, we spend the majority of our time, um, you know, deeply engaged with um, activities in scouting, you know, we maintain the corporate, what I would call, architecture or landscape map around the, or the areas of, of focus and interest for us. We track the technology and investment trends and, you know, are really at the forefront of investor and advisor and entrepreneur outreach for the company. So that's really our primary mission in supporting, you know, the strategy management work that we do and actual transaction execution um, you know, can be a, a, a very small part. You know, I kind of ballpark it as sort of the, the, the sub 20% of day to day for us over the course of, of our overall time is spent actually, you know, driving individual deals. But, you know, deals are a, a real force multiplier for the organization. And, you know, they bring three distinct, in my view, potential ways to augment a company's strategy. And, you know, having done this for 30 years, you, um, uh, you know, get forced to kind of come up with shortcuts and, and little um, catchphrases for what you do. And so from a philosophy perspective, I'd say there are three kind of deal archetypes that I, um, you know, represent as, as why an organization might do a deal. So the first C is what I call capacity, and that's your classic tech tuck-in or aqua-hire deal. And, you know, really, you know, when you think about strategy, I'm a big subscriber and, you know, sort of the concept of, of the core, um, you know, that, that some consulting firms use. And so in that example, capacity deals are about enhancing your core and they're a way to fulfill, uh, you know, kind of quick and dirty gaps in product offerings or go-to-market coverage. And, you know, you look for a set of characteristics that mean this is, you know, 100% sellable and additive to, you know, everything that's already kind of a work in place for your organization. It's same customer, same buying center, same selling motion, same business model, and it's a drop and go. So that's a capacity deal. The next kind of step function up in deal type is what I call a capability deal. And that's really about not just, you know, your existing core and enhancing it, it's about adding a new Lego brick to your core. And that might be your kind of bolt-on acquisition. Um, but in that case, it's usually augmenting uh, a new product or service offering that can add technology or features or go-to-market motion to your existing stack um, as an adjacency, um, but highly complementary to your existing portfolio. 
And so it's an extension, but you know, it's not a radically new departure from what you do. And you expect it to be a similar selling motion, but perhaps a new value proposition or targeting um, you know, some new, new use cases or capabilities. The final deal, and these are you know, really more the, the few and far between, are what I call a catalyst deal. And that's you know, catalyst with a C, not catalyst with a Q, though um, you know, those of us in, in uh, the corp dev world um, you know, think about uh, you know, because of the mark they've made, catalyst, uh, uh, those other guys. Um, and, and, and the catalyst for me, I mean, those are really the transformational opportunities. And, you know, that's where you're actually, you know, going totally outside your core, expanding beyond your core. Um, those are, are typically going to be, you know, your largest mergers or MOEs. And it's a, a new meaningful line of business expansion that, um, again, these are kind of fewer and far between when they come along. But, you know, these are the deals that, that, that certainly get a lot of press. So those to me are the, the ways that you approach a deal. And I think what's really important about that is usually that ends up defining, you know, who will be the internal lead and sponsor of the deal. Because, you know, Corp Dev, we're really never meant to be the lead or sponsor of a deal. You know, we're an internal service provider to the lines of business. Um, but really, it's kind of at that step function of a capacity deal is going to typically be owned by an R&D or go-to-market line of business owner. Uh, a capability deal will be led by, you know, an exec sponsor at the, the R&D or go-to-market level. You know, you know a, a, a business owner might be, you know, when you're thinking about who, who you're targeting as a seller, you know, the senior director of product management or a VP of product management, a capability deal, look, you're probably targeting a general manager or maybe, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, head of global go-to-market or head of global products in an organization. And finally, a catalyst deal, look, those are going to be led by the CEO and the board. Um, so, you know, that kind of helps you think about who your internal advocate's gonna be, depending on the type of deal that you judge yourself to be for an organization. And then for the buyer, it's really important to understand what are your drivers. And I've found that a common factor in deal fa failure is you'll kind of misclassify a deal to get it done. You know, you'll oversell or undersell a target um, because you're trying to, to fit that model to, to kind of hit the approval thresholds you're looking to get or the buy-in that you're looking to get for a deal, and you miss set expectations because you've misclassified. Interesting. So uh, excellent uh, framework for uh, the discussion today. Now, this market map that you're talking about, the architecture map, does CorpDev's view of the architecture map and product view of the architecture map match up? Are you sharing the same map, or are we talking about different maps in different parts of the organization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great question, and and yeah, the goal definitely is that they should match up. And just like I like to say, a deal model, you know, should never be. Corp Dev's view versus corporate finance's view on a deal model. Um, the same is true of the market map. It should never be, you know, a different model than you know the product's view. 
And, and the same would be do, true when you think about, you know, how you evaluate your customer map and, and you know, your customer pyramid, those are going to be shared. And it's, you know, where there's that lines of collaboration around strategy that we hope to drive. So, yeah, absolutely. That's a, a shared deliverable that, you know, depending on how the product group, product management is, is structured in an organization where ultimate ownership lies, you know, may, may um, uh, differ a, a bit, but that's absolutely meant to be a, a shared deliverable built-in partnership and something that really the whole organization can anchor around because it's such a fundamental, um, you know, piece of guidance around driving your strategic mission. Um, you know, it should help you understand what are the market segments that define our core? So, um, as a follow-up to that, the next logical question is, when you engage with the ecosystem around that architecture, who is going and talking to the startups out there, which is our universe of entrepreneurs who want to engage with their the larger players in their ecosystem in case there needs to be partnerships, there needs to be acquisitions, et cetera. Who are the interfaces? Is it the product organization? Is it corp dev? How much, you know, what is your guidance to entrepreneurs in terms of navigating the ecosystem from their point of view, working with the buy side of the acquisition map? Yeah, so that's, you know, definitely an area that, you know, when when I'm building my corporate development team and leading my corporate development team, I want to be the tip of the spear to um, uh, 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 you know, drive that dialogue, my team to drive that dialogue and then help mm -hmm. those entrepreneurs navigate our organization. Now, sometimes, you know, the matchmaking of how they find us or how we find them, um, you know, can be, um, you know, can, can come in a lot of different forms. And so we might not always be the first point of, of contact because, you know, mm -hmm. other ways of introduction um, get initiated, but we certainly want to be in the dialogue. And, you know, we are, um, you know, very focused on trying to, uh, uh, you know, be the center of knowledge management on all those interactions. So, you know, one of the things I pride okay. myself on in the corporate development function is maintaining, you know, our internal database of content management with that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at a place like NetApp over 10 years, it meant building a, our own, you know, proprietary Salesforce instance. It was just, you know, the corp dev scouting database with a couple thousand companies and, um, you know, thousands of, of um, you know, meetings and conversations and PowerPoint slides, you know, catalog yeah. that you have uh, for reference. So we definitely want to be the, the central point of navigation. Very good. So um, if we want to send you deals to look at, you are a perfectly good point to make that introduction into. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the good news and bad news is that, um, you know, we, our, our, our mandate is to be knowledgeable enough that we can be a, a quick filter and that, um, you know, I'm a big believer in the, the, the construct that quick no's are better than long mateys. So, you know, especially when it's a very clear 
you know, this isn't a space that's of interest for us or, you know, to be able to, you know, not waste entrepreneurs' time because the most valuable right. resource that they all have um, beyond money and access to talent is, is their own time. Um, but, um, yeah, also as, as the, the ability to help you intelligently navigate the organization in terms of where your opportunity should be targeted, um, uh, who are the right product managers to evaluate and opine on if there's a fit or, or area uh, to work together, mm -hmm. you know, we can help you find those individuals most quickly. And um, I know you've recently switched to Rackspace. Have you created this architecture map already for Rackspace? Do you have a sense of what what is going to be your uh, absolutely absolutely? It, it, it was the first uh, you know major deliverable that I committed in the role because it's such an important piece of the yep. conversation and and really kind of our roadmap for you know how I think about where I want to prioritize my time is knowing you know which one of those market spaces we need to be focused on. And what uh, what are some of the highlights of that? If you whatever you feel comfortable sharing as directives or directional guidance, not directives, directional guidance to our ecosystem on what what are the things that Rackspace is looking for? Sure. So you know we um, you know pride ourselves on being kind of unique in the ecosystem relative to the competitors that we face day in and day out for our services. You know which cover um, you know providing architecture, design, and build, and deploy, and maintain for, um, you know, the gamut of um, uh, uh, private cloud, public cloud, and managed services. And so, um, you know, there are a couple of vectors on the map that are important to us. Um, really a hallmark acquisition for the company that was done before I joined, but, you know, we continue to be a part of the integration of uh, was a company called Onica, which was a leader in AWS, um, you know, cloud services, um, uh, advisory and, and, and managed services. Um, that's given us a phenomenal footprint, the leading footprint in the AWS ecosystem. Um, we mm -hmm. have, uh, you know, capabilities in Azure and Google, um, but we yeah. aspire to, you know, match our level of expertise um, in those public clouds as we do in AWS. So, you know, mm -hmm. more, more work to do to augment our set of capabilities uh, in, in, uh, uh, on those platforms. Um, and then, you know, we also see the opportunity to continue to expand in some of the areas of, of new development and growth with, you know, some of the more, um, you know, kind of next generation sets of services that are taking advantage of the public cloud. So things like AI, ML, IoT, cloud native development, those are our services and capabilities that, um, you know, we have existing offerings, but still, you know, more to do to augment there. So those would be some examples of the spaces where we have the keenest interest. And um, architecturally, it seems like you have one of the big public cloud providers like the AWS, Azure, or Google at the very bottom, and then you have tools and technologies to manage all that that data uh, that uh, Rackspace provides. 
and then you have things coming on top of that. Is that the right way to uh, summarize your architectural yeah. framework? Yeah, I'm hiring. So if you, you know, it sounds sounds like you can help us with, uh, you know, and and you know, that's very much, you know, kind of how we think about these stacks. Um, you know, it's kind of the I, I call them like Lego block diagrams, and how these get stacked together. So that's yeah. absolutely well, right. There's public cloud is the foundational layer. There's aspects of you know the kind of the centralized management plane layer um, that for us we have a lot of in-house technology that we call the Rackspace fabric to manage, and then there's these next-gen services that run on top of that. AIML, IoT, cloud native development. So uh, you're probably familiar with my writings on platform as a service, the whole SaaS movement. And yes. uh, my thesis is that a lot of the SaaS space, the leaders in the SaaS space, and the, mo the most promising players in the SaaS place, space are going to evolve to become platform as a service players and, and get into that kind of stack uh, model where they, you know, they will play in one layer and, you know, have people extending and expanding their capabilities in the next layer, whichever layer they're playing in. So it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing. Exactly. So um, switching gears a bit, let's talk about valuation. What role does valuation play in whether an acquisition happens or not? And And I would like to focus actually on your first two categories, the you know very small tap-in stuff, and then the capability extension one, the big acquisitions that are completely uncharted territory acquisitions, we, we deal with early stage companies, so that doesn't happen until much later in the game, so that's not as relevant for my audience at the moment. Sure. Yeah, I mean, valuation is obviously, you know, for good or for bad, where the rubber meets the road. And, you know, what I hate to hear, um, and, you know, I haven't heard it often in my career, but there are a few times that I do and it makes me shudder, is, you know, when those, those you know, sponsor levels that I talked about, depending on the deal type, like the line of business owner or, um, you know, the executive sponsor, say something like, I don't know if I have a walkaway price. That is, um, you know, a... a uh, very uncomfortable position um, to have to navigate against in, in, in my role as, as intermediary with, you know, the CEO and, and, and CFO or, or others, because I'm always uncomfortable going into a negotiation without, you know, clear boundaries on valuation. So it's an area that we do, you know, a lot of work and, and it's a lot of the, you know, the partnership exercise between how you size the opportunity, you know, that, 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 in working with the, the product and go-to-market representatives on the deal, help you shape, um, you know, what you commit to the leadership team, you know, at the C-level over what this deal will deliver into your organization. And then, you know, what you set as an acceptable, um, you know, range of, of what you're willing to pay. And at what point the price, you know, the, the return is, 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 you know, not sufficient to warrant proceeding. And, you know, in that regard, you know, we'll go into any negotiation with a target with a very clear set of guideposts. You know, we'll do sort of the, the, the football field where we'll say, 
you know, based on all the work that we've done and, you know, our view of the opportunity and what their view of their opportunity should be standalone. And, you know, here's sort of the football field map of, you know, where we can go in and they should at least feel like we're giving them a respectable, you know, market appropriate, um, uh, you know, because obviously, you know, a big part of, of my job responsibility is, is to get the best deal I can um, for the company that I work for. Um, uh, you know, that can meet the needs to, um, you know, complete the deal. Um, but, you know, have to do it in a way that, that you know, we, we do want um, the, the entrepreneurs who have, you know, put in the blood, sweat, and tears in their organizations and, and put in that hard work and taken the risk to feel like, you know, they get the appropriate reward. And we never want people to, you know, bottom line, I, my goal isn't for people to feel like they got screwed to get the deal done. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, valuation is a critical player. I think, you know, there's always going to be a bid ask and, you know, whether the math actually works out that 80% of all deals or something, you know, close at the midpoint of the, each side starting offer or however else it ends up shaking out. Um, you know, that, that, that's absolutely, you know, deals, you know, get, get kind of won or lost on, if there's a, a a meeting of the minds on on you know what the value is, what um, range would you put on your first two categories? The tuck-in acquisitions. What would be the valuation range? The yeah, um, I mean it's an interesting question, and you know it's it's so subjective that um, you know having spent time in you know I used to live in a a, a time where an enterprise startup or I'm sorry an enterprise software company could expect two and a half to three times revenue to be an appropriate multiple. And then you get into the world of SaaS where it's, you know, 30 to infinity times revenue is an appropriate multiple. And, you know, similarly now being in the world of professional services, which is a big part of the Rackspace line of business, you know, you used to live in a world where one to one and a half times revenue for professional services was an appropriate revenue. And now you see, you know, sexy cloud company, consultancies, you know, selling for four to six times revenue. So, you know, things are all over the map, but what I would say is, you know, uh, you know, kind of at any given point in time, you know, a, a capacity deal when it's just about the people, um, you know, I, I kind of think of that as like a one to three X revenue-ish multiple is is usually kind of the, 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 the range, uh, you know, and I say that at a very, Know, kind of high level and then a capability mm -hmm. deal again depending on the market um you know could be like a three to ten x depending on if it's a SaaS recurring business or, or anything else you know 10 times revenue is sort of a a typical you know what they say SaaS multiple um that being said you know the, these are all very you know market specific kind of full force multipliers that you apply so it, it's hard to be you know, too generic. Um, again, you know, I think back to, you know, what became the 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 trend of acquire and people started talking about, you know, million dollars ahead being the right, you know, range for an acquire, you know, when when Yahoo was doing their, you know, acquire a week under Marissa Mayer. So, you know, th these things constantly evolve and change and subject to the market. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, giving broad guidance is difficult there. Well, in Acquire, it's 
really the higher price points would correlate with scarcity. If you're if you have something very specific and very deeply sought after by the acquirer, that is where you get anything beyond reasonable. So, uh, all right. Well, um, I would like to if you if you can take us through. Um, a thought process around bootstrapping to exit. I have a thesis that, um, and I've had lots of conversations on this topic, and these days actually there's a class of venture capitalists who have also figured this out and are positioning themselves for this kind of uh, situation. I'm a big believer in bootstrapping to exit. Startups with an interesting strategic product that achieves product market fit with no funding or with small amounts of capital infusion and have very successful outcomes for all stakeholders. What are your thoughts about such acquisitions? And this is, I would say, this is probably the majority of your capacity and capability acquisitions. Is that not true? And have you done such acquisitions? And could you share some, you know, maybe a case study in capacity and a case study in capability and kind of talk about the capital infusion versus the exit price just give us a little bit of a sense. Sure. I mean, I think, look, obviously, aspirationally, the more bootstrapping that you can do, the more equity as a founder you're able to hold on to for yourself, you know, the better your outcome will be. I think, you know, the, the, the concern becomes, you know, capital, uh, you know, is sort of, you know, key to uh, an organization's ability to expand and you never, you know, want to limit your ability to grow um, in a market and in, 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 in capture market because of, of capital constraints. And, and so, you know, how you balance, um, you know, being penny wise and pound foolish because of, of um, capital constraints. So look, I think that's why, why founders jobs are so, so challenging and difficult is is weighing those balance points, and you know it's one thing to optimize capital structure when you're the CFO of a big public company and having to think about you know debt and equity and you know do I do I float a convertible note as a CFO so I can do a little bit more share buybacks as a public company and being you know the the, the founder entrepreneur saying well if I took this much seed money. And I could grow this much faster and increase my multiple because I'm, you know, now growing um, 150% instead of 20% because, you know, I just don't have the, the go-to-market capacity or R&D capacity to build and sell as fast as I'd like. So, um, you know, I think that, that um, you know, my view on capability deals is no, those typically are, are the deals that are, are seen, you know, legitimate you know, uh, series A, series B, um, you know, capability deals, you're buying a real business with a real, you know, scale go to market. And, you know, you're, you're, you're doing, you know, you know, tens of millions of, of revenue, and you're probably going to have required, um, you know, some forms of, of traditional venture to, to achieve that level of scale. Um, and so, you know, I think the bootstrapping journey um, if you have, uh, you know, or, or 
it, it really gets set kind of around aspirations and just, you know, kind of the, the, the hit rates on all these are very hard when you think about the statistics of, of founded companies to funded companies to um, exited companies, you know, it's still, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, large numbers that, that get filtered down at each one of those levels. Um, but yeah, I've certainly seen the examples of amazing cases of founders that go very far, you know, bootstrapping and are very um, conservative with with how they raise money, so that, that by the time they're they're facing their exit, you know, they're looking at still owning 30, 40, or or, or more percent of, of cap tables and seeing great outcomes as a result. I know you have to run, um, so I'll just you know, add to what you said by um, expanding the thought process to not just the, the ownership, but also the issue of what is the valuation at which somebody is willing to acquire. If you raise too much capital and price yourself out, out of the market, then deals don't happen. You know, if you, if you have arrived at $5 million in revenue with $20 million capital infusion, then the investor's expectations for a deal to happen is going to be a much higher price point, valuation point, than what an acquirer might be willing to pay. So it depends also on, you know, what stage are you looking to exit? No, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, that's where good advice, um, you know, around, um, uh, you know, around the table for the founders is really important to kind of think through, you know, we don't just think about um, control around the cap table from a, a financial perspective, but there are also questions of, you know, how much of your vote gets diluted and how much governance control you have around making those decisions, because that's another important, you know, fact to consider is how much control you have as the founder so that, you know, it's not your investors that are telling you what the price is that, is the acceptable right. price, but you still have enough influence so that, you know, both, you know, economic um, uh, uh, as well as kind of the governance drivers are, are, are uh, you know, still maintained in a way that, that um, you know, you, you get the outcome uh, uh, you'd like to have based on, you know, all the, the, the work that you put into your enterprise. Steve, I should let you go. I know you have something else. Thank yeah, you for coming and we'll continue the conversation. Thanks, sir. Yeah, great discussion. I hope that was helpful. Very helpful. Again, Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll close by saying, um, you know, I don't get enough of this stuff uh, with my day job. I keep a, a good, robust portfolio of, of companies that I help as an advisor. And, um, you know, I have a very easy email, um, mitz at rackspace.com. Um, um, also available on LinkedIn. So thank you again for the invitation and best of luck to uh, you know all your entrepreneurs. We'll be in touch. Thank, thank you. you. Folks, I'm going to spend a few more minutes uh, just closing out some of the um, thought trains that Steve shared here, just so that you understand this um, topic a bit more. So we will start with the entrepreneur pitches in just a moment. Let me just take a few more minutes to, to explain a few more points here. So uh, this notion of valuation versus 
how much funding you raise is a very important point to keep track of. So you, we heard about two types of early stage deals that Steve discussed, the capacity deals and the capability deals. So in the early, very, very early stage deals where companies are acquiring to bring capacity in, the exit prices are remarkably lower, right? One to three X of revenue. So if you're if you've done five million in revenue, which actually is not that common, and you're getting five million to fifteen million in exit price, you have to control how much money you have raised to make money off that deal. So if you have bootstrapped the company, then a five million to fifteen million exit on a five million revenue deal is great. Everybody makes money. If you have a small amount of capital infusion, maybe one or two million, three million dollars of capital infusion, you get that exit. Even that, I mean, you haven't spent like 10 years doing that. You have, you're doing this in a you know, compressed time frame. That also works out. But if you raise 20 million to get to 5 million in revenue, and then you sell that for $5 million, nobody makes money. That is considered a failure. So um, this is why I want to introduce you to this notion of bootstrapping to exit for the smaller deal size category. Now, if you get to Series A, Series B, where you are, you know, on a trajectory to raise, you know, $10, $15 million of capital, $20 million of capital, and you want to get to you know, 20, 30 million dollars of revenue and get like five to 10x on the valuation, that's a different kind of deal. That is not a bootstrapping to exit deal. That happens, it happens plenty in the industry because right now the number of acquirers acquiring are much larger than it used to be. So the market has more liquidity. But pay attention to what your capacity is to get to that kind of revenue level. We had recently a very, very good discussion with Warren Weiss. If you haven't listen, listened to this discussion, please do, where we talk about security deals, for example. There's a lot of entrepreneurship in cybersecurity, but if you look at the customer side of, enterprise customer side of cybersecurity, the CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers, or the CIOs, are so swamped with new technologies and innovation, it's very difficult for them to evaluate a you know, seed stage product. So getting for a seed stage product to get a seat at the table and being evaluated by a CISO, for instance, is going to be hard. Uh, same kind of situation happening in DevOps. There's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of innovation going on, a lot of little point product innovation going on, which would work better if it sat inside the feature set of another larger player within the segment, whether it's cybersecurity or DevOps and, or whatever. So this is a category, these, these are situations where you need to position yourself for an early exit and you have to do your venture in a capital-efficient, time-efficient way. So this conversation will be continued. I will have other guests 
talking about this issue because this is becoming a very important issue for the ecosystem. Um, so I hope you found today's conversation interesting and useful, and um, you will learn a lot more on exit strategy and how to formulate your early stage funding strategy in relation to what exit is viable.